Ben, Ben Avery here from the Comic Book Time Machine. Just to uh, quickly remind you that these following episodes were actually taken from a larger episode and cut up into more easily indexed, smaller portions. So there are going to be times when I talk about, you know, next in this episode or previously in this episode, because originally these were released as long episodes that covered a single month of the comics. A long time ago, on a spinner rack far, far away. The Comic Book Time Machine presents Marvel's Cosmic Comics, exploring Marvel's licensed sci-fi and fantasy during the Star Wars period. Episode 42, Man from Atlantis, Issue 1, cover date February 1978. So, Man from Atlantis, here is my experience with Man from Atlantis. Uh, first, Patrick Duffy. Second, Patrick Duffy. Um, I saw him on Step by Step, and I was aware of him on Dallas, because everyone was aware of him on Dallas back then in the 80s when he was on Dallas. He was a really high-profile TV star, but before that, he was Mark Harris, the Man from Atlantis. He was a web-fingered man who could withstand deep ocean pressure and he could breathe underwater. And he had no memory of where he came from before he washed up on the beach. He also had four successful TV movies in 1977 or around there. And then that was ordered to a 13-episode half season that uh, the first episode of that was aired in September of 1997. In November of 1997, the first issue of the comic hit the stands, and the book itself is a hefty book. I already mentioned this is a dollar, a dollar cover price, and it's it's got that perfect binding of a spine kind of thing. Um, not not exactly the perfect binding, but that that solid binding rather than the saddle, regular saddle stitch. And it has two stories. Both of them are 25 pages long, so that's 30 pages of story that you're getting, which um, is, you know, it's, you know, a regular issue, you're getting 17 pages of story, 30 pages of story, what I'm talking about, 50 pages of story. Well, what can I say? Math is hard. Um, 50 pages of story, uh, which you buy two comics at 35 cents, you're getting 17 pages of story, that's 34 pages. Uh, You're still getting, you know, another 16 pages. Basically, you're getting three issues worth of what passed for a typical story in a 35 cent comic that same month. So you're, you're getting that for a dollar. You're, you're already a nickel ahead uh, of, of things. But then there's also these articles. Uh, it has a two-page profile on Patrick Duffy, a three-page article about a set visit that D- uh, David and Janice Cohen were able to take part in, where they got to see some of the underwater sets and miniatures and meet the crew and watch some filming. 
Uh, and then Joe Duffy wrote an overview of where the series was going in this new season, uh, this actual season of one hour episodes rather than the, I guess, the two hour uh, TV movies that they had had uh, shown on NBC. And there were also some great pinups by uh, Gene Colan and Joe Sinnott and Mike Zeck. And finally, there was a letters page write up uh, by uh, Archie Goodwin, that, that mission statement that that uh, is, you always see in, in issue one of comics back then. He gives the reasons for doing the comic and he even mentions about how Submariner had trouble with his own book. And oh, and they, they also have some um, uh, pinup uh, photos of of I guess not pinup, but headshots, I guess, of the uh, the main crew, I mean, cast rather. And Patrick Duffy gets a full page of his own. Uh, just because, you know, he was the star. He was the heartthrob they were hanging this television series on. And there's a lot of things I could talk about with the origins of the show and that kind of thing. Um, stuff I picked up from reading the articles. But I'm just going to jump into the deep end here. And I just, I'm just i just going to say it. This book was a lot of fun. Now, I have never, ever seen this TV show. I want to now. Um, I doubt I'm going to. Mainly because it's pretty expensive on DVD. It's one of those... Um, on-demand DVD writable things that they do with the Warner Brothers archives or whatever. Uh, I really like to. I'm not going to. It's it's pretty expensive. But um, from the articles in here, I get the feeling that it's right up my alley. It's kind of a mashup of Six Million Dollar Man or um, you know The Incredible Hulk uh, and an Aquaman. It's that lone hero going from place to place, helping people righting wrongs, and um, then reading some articles where the with the, the show creators, they were actually kind of looking at it more like a, an opportunity to do Star Trek type stories where you move from place to place and, and find new people and have kind of a sci-fi metaphor thing going on. And so either way, uh, this sounds like the kind of thing that's basically uh, made for Ben. Okay. And not just made for, you know, four year old Ben, who would have been the guy that if they had shown it on my channels would have, I think, loved it i don't remember ever watching it um in in where where i lived at that time but um it it just i really enjoyed the comic here and it feels like they've taken that high concept of you know man underwater who has a submarine with humans who are following him around and doing science uh there's the, the submarine is called the um cetacean i think is what it's called and um they take that and they, they crank it up and say, you know what? Comic book, no budget for special effects. We can do whatever we want. Uh, our budget is a page rate. We can do anything. And I imagine the budget on a show like this back then in the in the 70s especially would have been huge. I mean, just doing Incredible Hulk makeup was a big budget thing. So that's why they only did it a couple times per episode. And this would have been huge. They recycled so much stuff in Six Million Dollar Man just because they didn't want to go out and film him running all the time. So they always had him wearing beige. But in, in this, you have to do underwater effects. You have to do these miniature effects. You'd have to do um, makeup effects on his hands because he has webbed fingers. They did contact effects on his eyes so that it, it kind of looked like it was glowing when he would be underwater, that kind of thing. And... You, so you add all of that and then you're you're filming in tanks of water. I mean, this is a huge budget thing. Uh, but on the comic book, they didn't have to worry about the budget. And 
you know, the budget might have been a reason for the cancellation of the show. It only lasted 13 episodes, but the comic itself, I mean, they're able to do anything. The, it features an underwater pirate uh, in the first story uh, who goes into battle against Mark Harris. And the the pirate and his crew of men, they wear these strange looking uh, deep diving suits that allow them to go far deeper than than what typically people can do when they're diving. And they have this huge battle underwater and they're throwing each other, you know, and he's mixing up mud and getting them stuck in the mud and there's rocks falling and trapping the submarines and all kinds of things like that. And then in the second story that has a half man, half robot sailor. And when I say half man, half robot, I mean, he split right down the middle and He's formerly a, a whaler and he has a steampunkish kind of android helmsman who is literally, you know, uh, at the helm, turning the wheel. And, uh, and this is on their solar powered sailing ship that's chasing down and ends up beaching a blue whale, the blue whale that killed his father. And the blue whale is covered in ropes and harpoons. And you get this kind of this backstory and this history and it's part Moby Dick and part Aquaman and part Jonah from the Bible. It could never have been done on TV in the 70s. And I just had a lot of fun reading it. I felt like I was reading a a, um, a more joyful Aquaman series, maybe uh, if Aquaman was an amnesiac who couldn't remember where he came from and who everyone, you know, in the scientific you know community that we're dealing with him, they assumed he's from Atlantis, you know, all the human people assume this. But um, it just felt like I was reading a fun Aquaman type of story, the kind of story. I, I mean, I like all kinds of stories, but I would love to read Aquaman stories like this. And and the Aquaman stories that I've read that are like this tend to be a little less serious. And the ones that I've read that are more serious are nothing like this. And so this just hit a sweet spot there and gave me a hero I really enjoyed reading about. And uh, like I said, I just had fun. And I just want to point out then that this very month, that human fly issue I hated so much, you know, that human fly issue that was written by Bill Mantlo and penciled by Frank Robbins. Well, Bill Mantlo wrote both of these stories. And the first one had pencils by, by Tom Sutton. Um, but the second one was drawn by, by Frank Robbins, the same team. And here the art is strong in both of them. The stories are well paced. The first story gives us the TV origin along with that pirate ad adventure, while the second story has Mark Harris, you know, swimming with dolphins and enjoying himself in the deep sea. And suddenly then he's also you know, faced with having to protect uh, Blue Whale from that Captain Ahabish cyborg. And, and so now he's he's acting heroic and he's working with the dolphins to help this Blue Whale to not die half beached on, you know, half out of the water, half in the water. It's just it was just fun. It's just fun. That's what it comes down to. And it was fun in a way that Human Fly, I think, was trying to be, but that didn't quite get there for me. Uh, and I think part of it is because it was fun, but it still took itself seriously and, and gave a story that was you know, meant to be emotional. I wasn't caught up in all the emotion of the story there, uh, but it was meant to be emotional, especially that, that second one where he's, you know, he's standing there. He is the last chance that that blue whale has. He's going to help that giant, giant creature that could never have been on TV and looked anywhere near realistic in 1977. Now, um. An interview I read in Back Issue Magazine, uh, 
there's and that's that interview is something I'll reference in later trips back in time. But one of the studio executives mentioned he didn't even know there was a comic book series about Man from Atlantis until after both the comic book and the show were were both canceled. And he wasn't happy when he found out because uh, he didn't want people uh, to think that Man from Atlantis was a kid show. And, uh, you know, I understand that that was and sometimes is a common conception of, of comic books. But I read this and I enjoyed myself and I found myself saying, you know, I would love to see the TV show. Uh, one last thing, a little bit of comic book scholarship that I've not seen anyone mention in any materials that I've read about this comic. And I'm sure no one cares that I'm making this connection. And I, you know, I doubt that I'm going to get any credit for making this connection, mainly because no one is going to be mentioning this connection to give me the credit. But um, I did find uh, this little bit of information. It's kind of me putting two and two together. And even though math is hard, at least with two and two, I know that it's going to be four. And uh, one of the reasons Man from Atlantis was was made as a comic is because they were looking for other licensed books to do because of the success of Star Wars. And I imagine that companies were coming to Marvel because of the success of Star Wars and I think also Conan, maybe. But um, Man from Atlantis also has another connection that made sense for them to actually run with this. And that is that. Hanna-Barbera, even though they weren't the company that was actually doing the production of Man from Atlantis, I, they owned the company that was doing the production. And, and so basically, this is a live-action Hanna-Barbera product. And this is something new that I haven't seen anyone make this connection, but I noticed that Hanna-Barbera characters were popping up on Mike's Amazing World of uh, comics, where I do a lot of my research to find out when things came out and that kind of thing. And I actually seeing them there, I was tempted. The completionist of me was was tempted to go ahead and start picking those up, too, and, and adding them into my Marvel license coverage. I'm not going to. I'm sticking with the sci-fi fantasy, but um, I was tempted. I came close. Anyway, Man from Atlantis, uh, that would have made sense that they already had a relationship with Hanna-Barbera. Hanna-Barbera would have said, you know, hey, what about this? We're also doing this TV show here. Would you be interested? And the rest would be history. That's the connective tissue, anyway, that I have, in my mind, made. And that's also, I think, then the reason why. In 1977, a comic book was produced and published and preserved to be sold to a comic collector and podcaster that allowed him to cleanse his palate from some fairly mediocre reading he's been doing. Uh, you know, that human fly issue just drags down everything else. But the man from Atlantis pulls it back up. We are in positive land here. Um, you know, a lackluster kind of mediocre Star Wars. And then we've got, you know, Godzilla that started out slow, but, you know, gave me a nice ending. And, you know, when you end well, that's what people remember. And I'm going to, you know, that, that high from Godzilla, this high from Man from Atlantis, um, I'm going to remember that. So now I just need to go and figure out how to get my hands on those four TV movies and 13 episodes of the TV show on DVD. It's almost 60 bucks. <laughs> so I'm interested, but I'm not $60 interested. I, I do have a birthday coming up. Maybe I, yeah, I'm not going to waste that birthday wish on man from Atlantis. I really would like to see this show though. And maybe it's going to end up being just terrible. I don't know. Um, so maybe I'm better off not seeing it. Maybe my imagination is going to have a better, you know, TV show than what, uh, what I actually would end up seeing. But 
Anyway, uh, time to move on to a, a classic of sci-fi. H.G. Wells' classic, First Men on the Moon. I'm going to read that next, and then I'm going to talk about it in the next section. So, here we go. Thanks for listening to the Comic Book Time Machine's Marvel's Cosmic Comics feed. You can find more discussion of many, many more comics like Superman and Spider-Man, What Ifs and Elseworlds, The Six Million Dollar Man and Batman, comics seven days old and seven decades old, on our main feed, which you can find on iTunes or at comicbooktimemachine.com. We'd also love it if you join us on Facebook at facebook.com or on Twitter, where we are at Comic Time. Next episode, Marvel Classic Comics, issue number 31, H.G. Wells, The First Men on the Moon.